I hope your experience in the last hour was the same as mine sitting right back there. Did not my heart burn within me as he opened to me the Word of God? I love to hear R.C. Sproul walk through a passage of Scripture. Come back and lean over it for a minute. <laughs> then take a walk. And come back and lean over it and take a walk. I could sit under that for a long time. One of the great disadvantages of being a preacher, you don't get to hear people preach very often, except yourself. And that gets old. <laughs> except that the Word is always new. So I, I love the preaching of the Word, and I thank God for the ministry that He just gave me in the last hour. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd, you'd come again. I'm so glad that you're a God who never wearies. You're never bored. You're never tired. You're always explosively enthusiastic about the things of God. And I pray that you would come now and bring clarity, bring charity, bring joy, bring hope. Lord, scattered across this room here are people bearing the most bitter providences right now in their lives. These are not theoretical things we're talking about. And I pray that faith would be mightily built and that you would guard us from the evil one who tries to pluck the seed of the word off the path. Let's banish him from this room, I pray, and establish your illuminating presence and bring us transforming power. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Let me begin by explaining the title of this morning's talk, namely, Man Satisfied in God's Providence. For me, it has two meanings, and then I'll, I'll take the two meanings and try to put them together into one meaning so that you can answer the question, in what sense are we to be satisfied with bitter and sweet providences? Here's the first meaning that I attribute to this title which I have been given. It means that Christians ought to be tremendously joyful in the assurance that all the providences of God work together for our good. Romans 8.28 All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. And so, the first ground and nature of the satisfaction is satisfaction in the assurance that all the providences of God that befall me work for my good. When I say all, I join with Charles Spurgeon, one of my Baptist heroes, to say, I believe, this is a quote from a sermon he gave on the providence of God, and nobody preached like Charles Spurgeon preaches. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat 
has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He attracted 4,000 people to that kind of preaching. I mean, that's an incredible affirmation. You know, last night when R.C. said, when the doctrine of the providence of God goes, God goes. That's right. That's absolutely right. Goes out of the church and goes out of the media and goes out of education and goes out of entertainment and goes out of business. Because if you don't ask how God relates to everything, pretty soon He doesn't relate to anything. And people ask Charles Spurgeon, how's that different from fatalism, stoicism? And this was his answer. What is fate? Fate is this. Whatever is, must be. But there is a difference between that and providence. Providence says, whatever God ordains, must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without purpose. Everything in this world is working for some great end. Fate does not say that. There is all the difference between fate and providence that there is between a man with good eyes and a blind man. He who has faith is better than the Stoic. The Stoical philosopher bore it because he believed it must be. The Christian bears it because he believes it is working for his good. So my first answer about the meaning of this title, man satisfied in God's providence, is we should be satisfied with the providences of God to the degree that we have assurance that they all are working for our good. Now that does not go far enough for me. That's a great and biblical answer. And I love Romans 8.28. It's probably my third or fourth favorite verse in the Bible. The second meaning that I attach to this title, Man Satisfied in God's Providence, has to be addressed because we haven't defined the good yet. Works for my good. What's that? What is that? My second answer to the question of why, how, and what it is to be satisfied in the providence of God is simply this. Our satisfaction must be ultimately in the God of providence. Providence is not an end in itself. The heavens are telling the glory of God. All the works of God in the world are meant to direct your attention to God. C.S. Lewis has this great picture in one of his books about a barn 
And I didn't know this until just a few years ago when I visited one in Minnesota and they had a recreational barn with all kinds of ropes to swing on. And it was broad daylight outside and inside it was dark. And it was full of dust. Just the hay was everywhere. And as the sun moved at one point, there was a slack gap in the barn and it came through like a laser. And you could see all the dust beams in it, which you couldn't see. could preach a sermon on that parable, but that's not the point. The point was, as you looked at it, you said, oh, that's beautiful, it's like a laser beam. And all the kids were amazed. It was a homeschool thing in the barn. All the kids were amazed. And I walked over into it and looked up and was blinded by this hole in the side of the barn. The point of the, of the beams of providence is to beckon you into the ray and to direct your attention up the beam into God. And unless your satisfaction reposes on God Himself, providence has not in your life yet performed its design purpose. So those are my two answers. Now let me try to put them together into one understanding of the satisfaction we should have in the providence of God. God works all of them together for your good, and your good is God. Or let me put it together like this. I should feel satisfaction in the providence of God to the degree that two things happen. One, these providences reveal God to me, and two, they shape me and make me into the kind of person who finds my treasure more fully in God. In those two ways, then, providences should satisfy me. They reveal God to me, and they go to work on me, sometimes very painfully, to make me into the kind of person who more fully delights in this treasure revealed to me in them, God. Now, if those two things come true in any of your providences, you should be satisfied in providence. Now, let me pick up where we left off last night and try to bring you up to speed and then relate this and move forward. Last night, the point was God displays His glory in all the works of providence, and this is not narcissistic or unloving for the two reasons that I gave, namely that when God displays Himself in all the works of providence, He gives us, He offers us what is best, and that's an act of love. And not only does He give us what is best, but He works in His people to awaken them with hearts made livid, live, new, with all the calluses of the world that we've gotten by rubbing up against fleeting pleasures all our life long. He just carves all the callus off and leaves it bloody and oozy and sensitive so that when the great, beautiful glory of God is revealed to us, we're alive to it. We can feel it. We can taste it. We can eat it. We can revel in it. We're not dead anymore to it. 
a hard thing to preach in a worship service and you're lifting up the glories of the Lord and you look out and you just fear they're dead. They don't know. They don't know. They're listening. They're, they're fascinated, but they don't taste. It's so scary. So God not only loves us in offering us Himself through all the works of providence and revealing His all-satisfying glory, He moves in on us and wakens the heart. He opened the heart of Lydia that she might give heed to the Word of God. That's the new birth. He opened her heart to love, to delight in. He gave her a new spiritual taste so that when the Word landed, it tasted. And there was a self-evidencing experience of God's distinguishing glory. So He's not unloving when He lifts up Himself. No, He's infinitely loving when He lifts up Himself and exalts Himself in all that He does the last point last night was in calling forth from us a satisfaction in Him, He is also magnifying His glory because God is most satisfied in you when you are most, or God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. My wife is more honored when I delight in her than when I just dutifully serve her. Joy in God magnifies the worthiness of God. Now I want you to hear this from a far more God-besotted and Bible-saturated pastor than I am, namely Jonathan Edwards. I want to read a few sentences from Edwards that I hope will persuade you that this is just not some John Piper odd construction of biblical revelation, but is historic and is profoundly true. Listen carefully, because Edwards is not easy to understand sometimes. God glorifies Himself. And if you ever want to track down this quote, it's Miscellanies 448. God glorifies Himself toward the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, in communicating Himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which He makes of Himself. God is glorified not only by His glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. I've never had an original thought in my, in my life. And if I had one, I would doubt it. When those, I'm, I'm still reading, when those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that it might be received both by the mind and by the heart. He that testifies His idea 
of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his approbation of it and his delight in it. Is that clear? That's not hard to understand. What a great quote. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. Or, therefore, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. There is no final conflict between God's passion to be glorified and your passion and stop denying it, your passion to be happy. Oh, I'm tempted to go on a little detour here about a page I read in C.S. Lewis back in 1968 standing in Roman's bookstore on Colorado Avenue when I was attending Fuller Seminary. It was one of those immeasurable moments, those divine encounters when I opened C.S. Lewis's book, A Weight of Glory, and read, we are far too easily satisfied. I was, those were in those years, those Copernican revolutionary years. Now comes a practical implication that is almost too good to be true. It is almost incredible. The implication is this. Since God is most glorified in you, when you are most satisfied in Him, therefore, the effort to maximize your joy in God is the main business of life. I call it Christian hedonism. The main business of life is to maximize your joy in God. Because in that joy, as Jonathan Edwards said, God is more glorified than if you just know that He is glorious and say that He is glorious. Contrary to a hundred philosophers, especially Immanuel Kant, this pursuit of our joy as the main business of life does not destroy virtue. It is the essence of virtue. Virtue is the God-directed pursuit of joy in God. Sin, biblically, is the pursuit of happiness where it cannot be lastingly found. Jeremiah 2, 13, Be appalled, O heavens! Be shocked at this! My people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living water. Number one, and have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Number two, sin is forsaking the pursuit of your joy in the fountain of the rivers of delight in God. 
And sin is, secondly, a carving out, which you are all doing if you are not pursuing it in God. You're pursuing it in your job or your ministry or your wife or your children or your vacations or Windows 95. Sin is the abandonment of the pursuit of joy in God and all the false allegiances that entails. Virtue is to treasure God above all things, to make every effort to maximize that treasuring of God and then to reveal in the lifestyle that flows from that treasuring the God of that treasure. Night before last, as I was working on these messages, I got a call from my associate, David Michael. He said, Patty, and Glenn just discovered that the lump that was in her breast when she had her baby in January is very aggressively cancerous. And tomorrow morning, that was yesterday morning, they will do a major mastectomy, take all the lymph nodes, do a bone scan and a liver scan, and they're very afraid. It is far advanced. Just three little children. Glenn has spent the last five years on Saturdays building with his own hands a house that they just moved into. And I called him on the phone and spoke to her and prayed with her and spoke to him. and He cried and said, I can't imagine living with anybody else. I can't imagine anybody else bringing up my kids. How are they to be satisfied with this providence? Now, before I answer that, I just want to take you to a text, and I invite you to turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Second Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Paul is reporting here on the affliction and suffering that he experienced in Asia. And he puts it into a theological context and talks about the providence of God and the purposes of the providence and his satisfaction in the providence. Second Corinthians 1, 8, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. So he had been pushed over the edge of his strength so that we despaired even of life. He thought he was, it was over. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Here comes the purpose clause and it is none other than God's purpose. This isn't Satan's purpose. This isn't chance purpose, which is an oxymoron. 
in order that we should not trust or rely. You could say, rest in, be satisfied with, find contentment in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. How are we to be satisfied in bitter providences that push you beyond your strength and bring you to the point of death? Well, here's what I said earlier. To the degree that providences reveal God to you and to the degree that they shape you into the kind of person who more fully treasures God, they are to be treasured and they are to bring satisfaction. Now, Paul says here that this life-threatening providence was designed by God for a holy purpose. Not to trust in myself anymore, but to trust in the God who raises the dead. In other words, Paul should find more contentment, more security, more satisfaction in God and communion with Him on the other side of resurrection than in staying alive and escaping or in experiencing torment here. The providence was to strip Paul of reliances upon earth. Anything. Wife, children, job, health, the future retirement plan. Providences of God like this one are brought into our lives to knock crutches out from under our souls and leave us falling on God and finding His arms open and our position fully sufficient in Him. So He was being shaped. He was being shaped. It was that I would be purged of some of my unbelief. I'll tell you, when R.C. Sproul stood here and said that it was a mercy that God had not revealed to him all of the sin in his heart, what my heart said is, in relation to this point, God is merciful not to reveal to me all the remnants of unbelief. Oh, ye of little faith, do you not know that your Father knows that you need them? Be anxious for nothing, not what you eat, not what you drink, not what you put on. Seek the kingdom first. All these things will be yours. Anxiety, folks, is unbelief in the gracious providences of God. It's unbelief, and it's a horrible thing how much of it is left in our hearts even after we have been born again. God is most glorified in Paul when Paul is cast most fully on God for his satisfaction. Glenn and Patty, I pray, will one see God and what he is like. For Paul, it was seeing that God values faith more than life. He values faith more than life. He values eternal fellowship with Him beyond the resurrection than He does es escaping oppression and torment and pain. And so He saw God 
and he was stripped of his supports and had to fall upon God, and so he was made more into a godly person. And that's happening to them as well. Patty said to me on the phone, God must think that I need more of him and more discipline. They've lost two children in the last two years. One at age two and one at birth. Things seem to come in batches, don't they? And some people get more than their... <laughs> Be careful. Share. One more thing I want to share with you about why satisfaction in the providence of God glorifies God. Here's a problem. I've been saying, repeating over and over again, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. Here's the problem. Satisfaction in God is invisible. If you're right now delighting in God, if you're savoring God, if you're drinking from the river of His delights, if you're feeding on the bread of heaven, I can't see it. I can't see it. I don't know what's going on in your heart. However, God means for His glory to be made visible in the world. Therefore, it isn't enough for you to have private religious experiences. This inner contentment and satisfaction must spill over in something visible. It's got a name. It's got a name. One name is sanctification, and the essence of sanctification is love. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. I want to illustrate this with just a few texts. This is my last point, but I'm going to take a few minutes to illustrate it with texts because I believe in America today there is a desperate need for Christians to radically, sacrificially love their enemies and love each other. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, if you want to follow along. Verses 32 to 34. While you're turning there, I'll describe the situation. Early in their Christian life, these people had experienced some persecution, and some of them had been put in jail, and others had not been put in jail. And those who had not been put in jail were faced with the question of whether they would visit and have compassion on those who were in jail, and thus risk being identified with them, and thus being persecuted like them. That's the situation. The question I want you to ask as we read this text is, what is the liberating power of love in this text? Verse 32, Hebrews 10. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. How did that happen? How did they get to be partners? Here it is. For you had compassion on the prisoners, and you pause and wonder. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property 
since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Here's a group of Christians who are facing a choice. Shall we visit the prison and become identified with Christians and risk reprisal, or shall we go underground and keep our children safe and our houses safe and our lives? And they made a choice to go to the prison in compassion, in love. And as they were walking to the prison, they looked over their shoulders and their houses were on fire. People were torching them and throwing their furniture out into the street. And they sang. They sang a song. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Anachronistically, but they sang. They sang. How did they do that? Where'd that come from? That's very strange behavior. It's not American <laughs> to sing when somebody tortures your house. It's not, it's not human, and especially not American Christianity. We, we move to better houses. Well, the answer is given real clearly. Verse 34 second half of the verse, because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's God, folks. That's the glory of God. Better and abiding. There are texts anywhere in the Psalms where you hear those two words, better and it's lasting. Thou dost show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forever. It's better and it's abiding. It's better and it's abiding. We're talking about everlasting fellowship with the God of glory. They were so satisfied with all that God was for them in Jesus now and forever that it spilled over in compassion for the hurting and enabled them not to have any cravings for things that caused them to curse or swear or even cry when their goods were plundered. They sang because in this providence, God's glory was shining. Was it not shining? Are you not tempted to fall down and say, what a God, what a God that could so satisfy a person's heart that they would choose to suffer for their fellow Christians at the expense of their houses and sing about it. Is that not the glory of God made visible? Isn't that what Jesus meant when he said, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good deeds going to the prison? 
in spite of the loss of your houses, that they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, if you need any added exegetical help to believe that what Jesus had in mind in Matthew 5.16, when he said, let your light so shine, that what he had in mind there was be ravished, be satisfied, be content with all that God is for you in Jesus so that you are free from the hindrances to love like greed and fear and self-consciousness. If you want to be freed from these things that hold you back and make you cleave to your house and cleave to your family and cleave to your job and cleave to yourself instead of being abandoned in love, if you want exegetical help, that that's what Jesus had in mind in Matthew 5.16, just back up a few verses. Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, rejoice in that day. For great is your reward in heaven. Is that clear? Where does joy, which is the light, I believe, let your light so shine doesn't mean, well, I guess we'll have to go to the prison and do our Christian duty. They sang. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their properties, and the joy was the light. You, 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 I'm not a Christian hedonist for anything other than exegetical constraints. I am forced by texts like this to say the key, brothers and sisters, the key to loving is joy in heaven so that when the pain of loving rears its head and says, don't do that, stay at home. Don't do that. Keep your money. Don't do that. Move to this more comfortable place. Don't go over to Afghanistan. They might lop off your right hand. Don't do that. I say, get down. I've got a satisfaction so much greater than anything you could offer me here in America or anywhere else that you are no competition. That is the biblical key to love. If you have a hard time loving your enemy, there's somebody at work that gets your goat, or if your marriage is falling apart and you're so angry because he let you down again and again and again and again, and he makes promises that he doesn't keep, and you get so bitter and so angry. If you're having trouble loving people, where are you fighting? Where's the front? Where's the battle line? I'm telling you, the battle line is to be satisfied in God. It's a God issue. And until our hearts are ravished with God, I won't have the resources even to be married to my wonderful wife, let alone love a thousand people who can't agree on whether you should have drums or an organ in worship. This is amazing. How do you do that? The, the resources for a pastor to keep loving and loving and loving and loving 
when there's relentless disagreement and criticism or somebody at work that just never appreciates you, is always on your cases, trying to find out some way to show you wrong. The resources folks are not in teeth gritting, doing what you're supposed to do, performing for God. The resources are joy in His future grace. Let me show you one other text. It's chapter 11 if you're still in Hebrews. I could show you two or three others to show you this is a motif in Hebrews from chapter 10 through 12. This, this way of living that love is the visible overflow of joy in God and that the battlefront for becoming a loving person is on the brink of eternity where we either are or aren't satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith... Must be a lot of Geneva Bibles out there. I can hear them. By faith... Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, rather, to share ill treatment. And that's an odd choice. Choosing, rather, to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse, abuse suffered for the Christ, the Messiah, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For, here it is again, he looked to the reward. This is exactly like chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. Moses is facing a choice. Here's Egypt with its security and its comforts and its esteem. And here is a call of God to experience relentless abuse, not only from the Egyptians short term, but from these cantankerous people long term. Pain, poverty, and the agony of leadership, and comforts and security in Egypt. This is love. This is love. Moses loved the people of God and served them faithfully for the next 80 years. This is love. Where did the power to forsake this and do love come from? It came from a very odd set of priorities. It says in verse 25, he chose ill treatment with the people of God. And he considered uh, suffering, in verse 26, with Christ, or for the Messiah, greater wealth than Egypt. How did he do that? W where did that set of priorities come from? How do, you, how do you become the kind of person who in America is an upside-down person? Who, when you watch radio I mean, TV ads, they don't work on you. How do you become that kind of person? Answer, in verse 26, 
he looked to the reward. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Your life is hid with Christ in God. The reward is God, and the main battle of becoming a loving person is becoming a satisfied person in God. Why look to the reward? Because when we fix our eyes on the surpassing worth of all that God is for us in Jesus, that satisfaction frees us from the bondage of the fleeting pleasures of Egypt and America. Fellow Christians, I'm done. I want to close with an exhortation. Brothers and sisters, comrades in the greatest cause in the world, God has a great work for us to do. God has a great work to be done in this world, and He is about it today in unprecedented ways in America and around the world. But you know what? Grand Rapids and Minneapolis and Orlando are cities that are saturated with churches. There are more churches in the Twin Cities than there are American missionaries to 1.5 billion perishing Muslims and Hindus in this world. I'm going to say that again because when I counted them in the yellow pages and then did the research, I was speechless. There are more churches we're not talking Christians, and we're only talking one city. In this God-soaked land, there are more churches in the Twin Cities than there are missionaries from America to all the perishing 1.5-plus billion Hindus and Muslims in the world. And there are how many? Three to 11,000 people groups in the world today who have yet to have their first God-glorifying indigenous church. Not one church. God means for this work to be done. And in His providence, He's going to get it done this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a testimony to all the nations throughout all the world, and then the end will come. It will happen. But you know, He means to do it through home sacrificing, land abandoning, family stressing, parent grieving, self-denying, life-risking, 100-fold inheriting, God-glorifying love in you. That's how he means to get it done. With all my heart, I plead with you. You're a theological bunch. Ligonier people like us are a theological bunch of people. I plead with all my heart, don't be easily satisfied 
with the fleeting pleasures of America. Don't be satisfied with the fleeting pleasures of America. It is insidious. It is relentless. It is a bombardment all day on the television, the radio, the billboards, the newspapers, the magazines. Be satisfied. Here is the message of the world. And every now and then somebody stands up or somebody opens the Bible and says, don't be so easily satisfied with the fleeting pleasures of Egypt. They only last about 80 years and then they're gone. They're gone forever and ever and ever and ever. They are fleeting. Don't be satisfied with anything less than better and abiding treasures, namely fellowship with God. Be content. Hebrews 13. Be content with what you have. Keep your life free from the love of money. For God in His sovereign providence has said, I will never leave you or forsake you so that we can say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And on earth, pause and wonder, on earth there is nothing that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Father, I ask that that testimony from Psalm 73, by the Holy Spirit and by the Word, would become the authentic, heartfelt testimony of every person in this room. And through them, the testimony of the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.